Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. All right, church, we are going to continue our series in the Psalms, uh, the book of Psalms, and we are still in the first book of the Psalms. Uh, The book of Psalms is actually divided into five books, and the, the first book spans the first 44 chapters, and we've been just walking through the Psalms about every other summer uh, for the last several years, and we are now in Psalm chapter 34, Psalm chapter 34. If, if that sort of rings a bell for you uh, because you've memorized a verse from Psalm 34, it's probably uh, Psalm 34 verse 8, and we will, we will get there today. Uh, We're only going to cover the first 10 verses because, well, multiple reasons. One, I want to let you out before lunch. Uh, And two, uh, the students did a great job this week uh, in something called Serve Roanoke. Our student ministry team partnered up with Cave Springs student ministry team. They've been doing this for many years, and I've been interested in the model. And Pastor Ethan uh, led our, our team to sort of join forces with them and, and see what that's all about and if perhaps it might be something we can learn from uh, for future summers of ministry. But you should be proud of our students. They, they worked hard Monday through Thursday and did a lot of cool service projects in our city, ranging from uh, rest homes to uh, schools to parks. Um, it was just an awesome week of service. And I got to serve alongside of them but uh, I wasn't able to get all the way through the psalm. So for those two reasons, uh, we're going to cover verses 1 through 10 of Psalm 34 today. I hope you're, you're there by now. I want to help you set a little bit of context. The, the psalm has a superscription, right? And the superscription is not the same thing as when the Bible editors give you a summary of what they think it's about. The superscription is actually a part of the text of Scripture, And Psalm 34 tells us, it is of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. So so what's going on here is David is telling us about the situation that prompts the writing of the psalm. So, So David, the shepherd boy who defeated Goliath and eventually became a great warrior for Israel over and became their king over a united Israelite kingdom, he's the one who authors this psalm. And according to this superscription that he puts at the beginning of it, David is reflecting back on a time before he assumed the throne. He's reflecting back on a a time after the prophet Samuel has anointed him to become king, but before the wicked king Saul had died. King Saul is jealous of David. He wants him dead because of David's military success, and David is on the run. And back in 1 Samuel chapter 21, he runs into Philistine territory, enemy territory, where he is recognized by the servants of Achish, king of Gath. 
And he's recognized as this warrior from Israel who had struck down many of Israel's enemies. And if, if the word Gath or the territory Gath sounds familiar, that's because it was the hometown of the giant Philistine named Goliath until David did what? He, he plugged him with a stone, right? Just knocked him out. So, so David is wanted dead by Saul, and he's fled into enemy territory. But the enemy territory he's fled to is the hometown of Goliath. So David's in danger. He's, he's detained, and he's in danger. He's not wanted at home, and now he's in enemy territory, and he's in a jam. And what we read in 1 Samuel 21, 13 is how he got out of the jam. He changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands. And he made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Okay, all right. That's one, one approach. And as a result, Achish, who was apparently known as Abimelech as well, because the superscription calls him Abimelech, which many Bible scholars suspect this may have been a title for Philistine kings, because going all the way back to Genesis 20, we see Abraham encountering a king named Abimelech. Anyway, this guy doesn't detain, detain David because he's like, I got enough crazy people in the kingdom, don't need another crazy guy, we'll see you later, David. So then David flees, not back to Israel, but to Moab, before Gad the prophet tells him to get out of enemy territory already and get back to Judah where you're supposed to become king to face the challenges head on. And it is at this point, it's a, it's a tipping point in the story, that David's rise to the throne commences and Saul's demise is cemented. It's at this point that David runs back to Judah that things change. One commentator writes this, had David remained in enemy territory, he probably would have never become king. By returning to Judah and protecting the people from the Philistines, which Saul could no longer do, David grew in reputation and in power. But none of this would have been possible without the Lord who delivers the humble, who seek him as their ultimate good. We just sang how, how good is he. And behind enemy lines, with no hope of deliverance, we learn through David's words that even though he pretends to be insane, that there was a seeking of the Lord that happens, and he is rediscovering and encountering the goodness of the Lord who delivers us from enemy lines, enemy territory, from trouble. So would you hear with me the word of the Lord? We're going to consider verses 1 through 3 to start. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Would you pray with me? God, we, we want to give you the praise that you are due for the deliverance that you have given us in Christ. God, you've rescued us from sin and from death and from hell and from the grave and that is worthy of your praise. God, I, I pray this morning that Psalm 34 would find root in our lives, that it would find its home in our hearts, that we would truly know the goodness of our great God. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So, so David, reflecting back on the deliverance that he has from the Lord, the first thing he shows us in verses 1 through 3 is that we need to praise the Lord. We need to praise the Lord and invite others to join us in praising Him. If you've been delivered by God, you've been delivered for the purpose of praise. After pointing to a time when he was in a pile of trouble, a time of adversity from which the Lord delivered him, David begins with praise. I will bless the Lord at all times, or more literally, at every time. Have you lived long enough yet to realize that life is made up of moments? That that life is made up of inflection points along the way that clarify our desperate need for the Lord and His deliverance? You you can get lazy, you can forget, you can become, become neglectful of how dependent you are upon the Lord, and then something will happen in your life, and it will make you realize how much you need the Lord. That's what's happened in David's life. And because the Lord has delivered him, he can't help but bless the Lord. The the Lord's provision in our lives in times of desperation should lead us to bless him. To, To bless the Lord may sound a bit strange to us. Like, how do I give anything to God? He already has everything. What blessing could I bring to the Lord who owns it all? But one scholar puts it this way, the Psalms are filled with blessings upon God. We, we bless Him for His counsel, Psalm 16, 7, for His holiness, Psalm 103, verse 1, for His dominion over all things, Psalm 103, 22, for His honor and His majesty, Psalm 104, verse 1. And here, we bless the Lord, David blesses the Lord because the Lord is a deliverer. He blesses David with undeserved deliverance. And in return, David blesses God with well-deserved praise. To be sure, God doesn't need anything from us, right? So what then does the phrase, bless the Lord, express? It expresses this determination on the part of the one who has been blessed by God to do something for the God who has blessed him. I'm going to do more than just talk about the wonderful deeds of God. I'm going to do more than just talk about the marvelous character of God. i got to do something. And I, I can't really give God anything because He's God, but by golly, I'm going to try. That's what it means to bless the Lord. Man, i got to give something back to this God who gave me everything. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. I am determined in light of how desperately I needed God and how surely he delivered me to bless him. We see this determination in what David says next. The Lord's praise shall continually be in my mouth and my soul makes its boast in the Lord. What what does your mouth continually speak? David says, my mouth is just going to keep on speaking the praise of God. My soul makes its boast. It takes delight in. Its pride is in God. You see, David's not just going through the motions. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Yeah, bless the Lord. Check that box. Back in the day, I've shared this in many of my sermons, but back in the day, there used to be offering envelopes with check boxes on them. You remember those? I made my contacts, I brought my offering, I read my Sunday school lesson, I read my Bible every day this week. I did all the stuff. 
And if we're not careful, we can reduce our relationship with God to a bunch of checkboxes. David is not there. He says, look, my mouth delights to, to sing the praise of God. It's in my soul. I will praise the Lord. And you know what? Every soul will boast in something. You were made for boasting. Human beings were made to boast. They were made to delight in something, to take pride in something. And ultimately, you will either boast in yourself or you will boast in the Savior. What does Paul say over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? I'm not going to boast in me, but by golly, I, if I got to boast, and I got to boast, I'm going to boast in the Lord. And I'm afraid there's so many Christians that are like, well, I don't want to boast in myself. And myself, but they've, they've forgotten you were made to delight in something, and that something is a someone, and it is the Lord. David will boast in him. Then in verse 2, the second line of verse 2, David invites the humble to hear and be glad. The truth that the Lord delivers is good news. It's good news not just for David, but for anyone who is humble. David is reduced to acting insane in enemy territory, but his deliverance is not ultimately due to himself, but it is due to the Lord's grace. He graciously gives deliverance to David, and he will graciously give deliverance to you. He will not deliver the arrogantly self-sufficient. He will not deliver the arrogantly self-righteous because they will not hear that they need a deliverer. But those who are humble will hear and they will be glad. The humble, those who are weary of their sin, those who are weary of the hostility of this world toward the godly, they will hear that the Lord delivers and they will be glad. Are you glad for the deliverance of the Lord this morning? Verse 3, David welcomes others to join him in praising the Lord. Because God has delivered me. Because those who are humble will hear that he delivers and be glad. Join me, he says. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Now, what does it mean to magnify the Lord? Because, like, the Lord is the great I am. He is the only uncreated being in the universe. The universe is this massive created existence, and yet God is infinitely greater and bigger than that. How do you magnify something as big as God? That's a great question. The image that I get is of a, of a magnifying glass, right? If you, if you want to make the text that is on, my, on the page of my Bible larger, then I get a magnifying glass to, to make it appear bigger, right? It's to, to look more intently upon. It's to dwell more precisely upon. It's to, to make his name great, to, to make him known as great. Yes, he is great, but he's not seen, and there's a whole world that needs how to, to see how great and awesome he is. So God, use my life like a magnifying glass so that other people can see how great my God is. Magnify God with me. And then he says, let us exalt his name together. Similarly, his, his name is the name above every other name. How do you exalt a name that is already above every other name? Well, you let people know about it. He is high and lifted up. He is enthroned on the praises of his people. He does have the name at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In being delivered from danger, David has found his purpose. 
His purpose is praise. Your purpose is praise. And it's not just to praise God individually, but to welcome others into that praise. Let's do this together. Let's delight in this God together. Then in verses 4 through 7, David describes his gladness in the Lord and his personal experience of the Lord's deliverance. Would you hear with me the word of the Lord in verses 4 through 7? I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Aren't you glad that we don't serve the God of the deist who says that God just set the world in motion and let it go and didn't really care about us after that. He's a God who hears the prayers of his people and responds. Verse 5. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. What a great truth. Paul goes from, this is the situation I'm writing about, to I have to praise God. And then he's like, let me back up and tell you why I have to praise God. Let me tell you a little bit about the story. So what he's sharing is is this picture of the joy of being delivered by God. And we, too, if we know Christ, have a story of God's deliverance and a joy that comes with it that we should share with others. That's point two. We must share the joy of the Lord's Deliverance. In verse 4, David tells us that he seeks the Lord in prayer, that he sought the Lord in prayer. And the word seek is an interesting word. It is never used in the Bible for seeking someone or something that's in an unknown location. So he's not playing hide and seek. He's saying, I knew where the Lord was and I went straight to him in prayer. I sought him. Did you know that David knows where the Lord is and that you can know where he's found as well? Do you know where the Lord is found? He's found at the end of yourself. The Lord is found at the end of your rope, at the end of yourself. It's found in utter dependence upon him and utter desperation for him. It is found when we recognize he is our only hope and our ultimate good. He is found when we see ourselves as trapped in enemy territory, beset by sins and death and hell in the grave with no place to run and no hope of delivering ourselves. And in that moment when we genuinely cry out to the Lord, I've got great news, the Lord answers. You see that in verse 4? I cried out to the Lord, I sought the Lord, and the Lord answered me. The word answer just means to respond. God responded to David's prayerful seeking. Now, I'll leave it to the really smart theologians to work out how it is that God is entirely sovereign and he knows all that's going to happen and he controls all things and yet somehow he responds to the praying of his people. But it's a biblical principle that we pray and God hears, he answers, he responds, that God does something in response to the praying of, people, of his people that is in no way contrary to the fact that he rules it all and he's it over and over it all and whatever happens is going to happen according, according to God's will. And you say, well, which is it? I don't know. 
I don't know how all that works out, but I know that we're commanded to pray, to seek the Lord in prayer, and that God hears, he answers, and he does something in response to our praying. David's prayerful seeking by delivering him results in that he is delivered literally from all that he feared. The word feared here is not the same word that is used for the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is an awe, it's a respect, it's a, it's a reverence, it's a hoping in, it's a depending upon. But the word for fear here in verse 4 is, is terror. God delivered him from all his terrors. What terrifies you? What terrifies you? God will take it. David was surely afraid that he would die or be captured by the enemy. That he would be tortured, that he would never fulfill God's purpose for his life to be the king of Israel. You ever fear that? You ever fear missing out on God's best, God's desire for your life? That sin is going to sack you, take you out before you have a chance to know what it's like to follow the Savior faithfully. Look to the Lord in desperation. Look to the Lord in dependence and with great devotion and resolve to praise Him when He delivers you and discover that He will indeed deliver you. He will deliver you from death. He will deliver you from sin and from hell and from the grave. He will deliver you from a sin that you cannot shake in your own power. He will deliver you from the power of people's opinions over your life and give you a holy resolve to live for Him no matter what, to not be afraid of what the world thinks, but to only delight in what God thinks and to follow Him. God answers, He delivers, He rescues. The answer to our fears is knowing and seeking the Lord Himself. In His distress and in His anger and in danger, rather, David did not seek solutions to all the what ifs and what abouts. Isn't that what we like to do? Man, that's my tendency. Any, any men in here? Any of you problem solvers, your wife shows up, she's got a problem, and really she just wants you to listen. And you're like, she's halfway through and you've got 10, 10 suggestions for how you're going to solve the problem, right? I mean, that's not a problem. We can do this and we can do that. Anybody else like that? that that's how I'm wired, right? Like, let's fix the problem. David doesn't seek solutions. He seeks the Savior. When we seek the Savior, we are on the path that leads to praise. When we move from seeking a quick fix to seeking the Lord, things change. Some of you are, are married here this morning, and you know this reality, right? I, as, a, as a pastor, I, I do some marriage counseling, and I've seen marriages that are being held together by what works and what keeps the peace, but there is always an underlying fear that just one thing could go wrong and blow everything up. Because they're relying on pragmatics rather than 
real deep-seated love and relationship. There's not selfless love and relationship there. On the other hand, I've seen marriages where what works or doesn't work doesn't really matter all that much because there's an underlying covenant relationship, a relationship of mutually gratifying and selfless love. David isn't seeking solutions first. He's seeking the Lord. It doesn't mean it's wrong to seek solutions, right? It's acting like a madman that gets David out of a jam, but first he seeks the Lord. I want you to hear this this morning. Solutions without the Savior are stale. You can live your whole life papering together, taping together a bunch of solutions that get you to the end of your life and miss the Savior in the process. You've missed the whole point. You can solve your next problem and your next problem and your next problem with a bunch of pragmatism, but if you miss on feasting on Jesus, you've missed the point. And when David seeks the Lord, he discovers something incredible in verse 5. When we lift our eyes from our fears to our Father, we, those, not just David, become radiant and our faces are never ashamed or covered with shame. You know what? It doesn't matter what the world says when you see the love of God in Christ. When you look to the Father and know you're loved by the Father, it doesn't really much matter whether the world loves you or not. No matter what shame they want to throw upon you, if me and the Lord are okay, I'm okay. Here's the point. The one who looks to the Lord is gloriously transformed. Though under attack, like David was, behind enemy lines, they are radiant. As Wilson writes, they radiate joy in a tangible, visible way. In Isaiah chapter 60, verse 5, this same word radiate is used to describe a, a mother who thought her children had been lost forever, and then she discovers they're still alive, and she sees her children Again, can you see your face? It, it radiates. Beholding the Lord and belonging to the Lord is face-changing. Our, our enemies and their assaults are placed into proper perspective, delivering us from the shame they want to heap upon us. When we look to the Lord, we find welcome and embrace and love and acceptance and protection through His deliverance, a deliverance that only God can give. For those who look to Jesus for deliverance from sin and death, the Spirit of God changes us and makes us look increasingly like the Savior that we seek. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You say, man, I, I don't feel like I look a lot like Jesus today. I don't feel like I've grown that much. Look to eternity. The change that he is making over time and will complete in eternity will blow your mind. Keep looking to the Savior with expectancy and confidence. In verse 6, David returns to speaking of himself. But now he uses the third person. I think it's because he doesn't want to brag about what he did. He wants to minimize anything that he did and amplify everything that God did. So he doesn't tell us that I cried out to the Lord, does he? What does he say? This poor man cried out. This poor guy. I'm a nobody. I'm just a, I'm just a poor man. 
Now, isn't that amazing for David to say? I mean, think about David. He had defeated Goliath. He had already defeated thousands of Israel's enemies. He could have come to God and said, you know, I'm pretty important. I'm pretty special. Consider my ministry resume. Think about all the things that I've done for you, God. I was the last born of Jesse out there in the sheep field, and I was doing fine shepherding my sheep, and then you're the one who told me I should be king, and I said, sure, and I let, Saul anoint, I, I let Samuel anoint me, and now I'm on the run from Saul. I've been trying to serve you. God, you know, you should listen to me because of all the wonderful things I've done. By the way, that guy Goliath, who got him, God? Huh? Does David do that? No. We get there sometimes, don't we, in church life? Well, I've been a member here 20 years. Why didn't they ask me to do that? Well, we've had this program or this agenda or this thing all this time and that changed. I mean, who, who are they to change that? Don't they know who I am? Man, God, give us the posture of David in verse 6. This poor man cried out to God. That's all I am. I, I'm a poor man. Powerless to escape my troubles. Powerless to overcome this besetting sin. Powerless to escape sin, death, hell, and the grave. But God is all-powerful and He delivers from our troubles. He helps us escape from our troubles. The word troubles means to be trapped in a tight corner. Some of you this morning might feel trapped. You might feel like there's no way out of the jam that probably you've even gotten yourself into. David has no way out, but he looks to the Lord and God saves him. He'll do the same for you. In verse 7, David clarifies that being delivered comes not necessarily when our problems disappear, but when God's presence is known. I want to say that again. God's deliverance comes not necessarily when our problems disappear, but when God's presence becomes known. You can stand through anything if you know God is with you and on your side. Or you're on his side. David uses the term in verse 7, the angel of the Lord. I could do an entire sermon on just the angel of the Lord. I'm not going to do that this morning, I promise. The term angel of the Lord here is used to refer to the presence of the Lord himself. The divine presence of God. The Lord encamps not just around David, but around all who fear him. To encamp is to to pitch a tent or to, to dwell with. This is tabernacle kind of language. There's the tabernacle, there's the temple, and then we get to Jesus in John 1.14 who pitches his tent with humanity. He makes himself present with us. You say, well, it says the angel of the Lord, it doesn't say the Lord. Let Let me give you some cross-references real quick. Genesis 22:11. It is the angel of the Lord who stopped Abraham from slaughtering Isaac. In Exodus 3:2, it is the angel of the Lord who appeared to Moses in a burning bush and then says, "Take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground." In Isaiah chapter 63 verse 9, we read of an angel who is called the angel of his presence. And the word angel simply means messenger. So, again, I don't have time to to preach the whole sermon, but I think oftentimes in Scripture, the angel of the Lord is what is called a Christophany, a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus. And is Jesus not 
the ultimate messenger of the Lord? To be sure, he is also the Lord himself, right? He is God the Son. There's never a time that, that Jesus was not. He's always existed. And yet, by coming on a rescue mission from heaven to be born as a man to take our place, it is in doing that that he is the messenger of what the Father is like. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. And so Jesus comes to reveal to us this Lord and to pitch his tent among us, John 1.14, so that when he completes what is necessary to receive the blessing of God and to pay the price of sin and be ascended to the right hand of the Father and then pour out his Spirit, that we could know God with us, Emmanuel, God with us. We can know his presence. We can have Jesus, and Jesus can be with us, and he will deliver. How? By letting us know his presence. Maybe not all of your problems disappearing tomorrow. You may not walk out of here today and say, man, I tasted of God. I know that God is good, and wow, look at that. I got everything I ever wanted in life. No. But what'd you get? God. If you've got God, You've got everything. So what does David urge us to do? In verses 8 through 10. Let's keep reading. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. David here, as one who's been delivered by God, turns to the invitation. You say, I don't don't see any given any invitations in Scripture. I I would beg to differ. Psalm 34, 8 through 10 is an invitation to join David in knowing this good God. And as we conclude this morning, I've got a little bit more to go, but we're, we're nearing an end, I promise. As we conclude this morning, we're in the invitational portion of the sermon. The question is, have you tasted and seen that God is good? Verse 8, at least the first half of verse 8, is a verse that many of us have memorized. It's, it's quite simple. But it's incredibly profound. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Join me in recognizing the goodness of God. David began with praise and then told us of the Lord's deliverance. Now by using the the illustration or the metaphor of tasting food, he invites us to trust the Lord, to know the Lord. Not just to know about the Lord, but to know Him. To experience the goodness of God on the inside. Knowing the Lord in a way that brings soul satisfaction and assurance of deliverance from every enemy demands a knowing that goes beyond knowing every verse of the Bible. You could have the entire Bible memorized and still not know God. Now don't misunderstand, I'm I'm not saying don't read your Bible. I'm just saying don't trust in your Bible reading. Do you, do you understand the difference? I, I, I want to preach to those of you who, I, who may have been inoculated against the gospel by checkbox Christianity. We talked earlier about the offering envelope. All the things I did this week, they make me a Christian. No, they don't. 
God makes you a Christian. The presence of God in your life makes you a Christian. Knowing Jesus and being united with Him makes you a Christian. Paul says it all over the place in the New Testament. Salvation is in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. The Spirit of God has to come upon us and supernaturally unite us with Christ by faith. And this knowing is a knowing that works a lot like tasting. Taste and see that the Lord is good. It wasn't too long after Stacy and I came to North Roanoke that some people in our church graciously introduced us to Frankie Rowland's Steakhouse. But the first way they introduced us to Frankie Rowland's Steakhouse was by describing their steak in great detail. It was only later they gave us a gift card. Because you need a gift card to go to Frankie Rowland's. People describe their steak in great, great detail, right? Man, if you go to Frankie's, you got to get the filet. Don't get anything other than the filet. It'll melt in your mouth. They cook it with clarified butter, some kosher salt, and some fresh black coarse ground pepper. They use a double boiler for even cooking on both sides. You've never had a steak like this. You don't need steak sauce. The steak is the sauce. Pretty soon, I knew just about everything about the Frankie Rollins filet. Could have passed an exam on the Frankie Rollins filet, where, where to go get it, the cut of meat, the, where the cows come from. I'd have, I'd have got 100% if you'd give me an exam on the Frankie's filet, but I didn't know a Frankie's filet. You see, having all the information about the steak still didn't mean that I had tasted the steak. I could describe the steak to you, but I hadn't tasted of it. It is only in the tasting of the steak that I finally knew the goodness of the steak. I, I took that first bite of that Frankie's filet. The first time I went to Frankie's, I didn't heed the advice, and I got a ribeye. Because who gets a filet? It's always tough. You get a ribeye, so it'll be tender. And Stacy took the advice of the evangelist for the Frankie's filet, and she got the Frankie's filet. And I'm eating my ribeye, and I'm like, it's good, but it's, it's kind of like any other ribeye I've had. And Stacy's over there eating the filet like, oh, wow. And I took one bite of, steak, of Stacy's steak, and I was like, why did I order this ribeye? That's, that's what they were trying to tell me about. What others tell you about the steak can lead you to the steak, but you have to taste the steak for yourself. And I'm afraid that in a, a group of people this large, that there's some people who could ace the exam on what the steak looks like and where you would find it, but you've never actually tasted of the steak. More importantly, you've never actually tasted of Christ. All the other facts in the world about steak can't provide what you learn in one scrumptious bite of a perfectly seasoned, juicing, juicy, tender bite of a Frankie's filet. How much more is this true with the Lord? David has told us that the Lord is praiseworthy because He is a trustworthy deliverer, but His salvation from our enemies doesn't come ultimately by knowing a bunch of facts, as important as it is to have the right facts, but by feasting on the Lord. It's a feasting that requires faith, a faith to take the first bite. There's some of you in this room, you were in another tradition and you were confirmed. You got a bunch of facts, you passed the test, but you never tasted and saw 
how good God is. By the way, the seeing comes after the tasting. You see that it's taste and see. I didn't enjoy or understand the Frankie's filet until I tasted it, and then I saw. And it wasn't that I saw with my eyes. I saw on the inside, and that's what God is saying here to us through David. Just taste of the Lord. Give yourself to the Lord in utter dependence and devotion and desperation and see God open your mind to an understanding like you've never known before. There's only so many facts I can give you about the stinking steak before you bite it and then you bite it and you're like, that's a good steak. You know that about God? Have you discovered how good God is? Anselm of Canterbury, writing in the 12th century, wrote this, I do not seek to understand in order that I may believe. I believe in order to understand. Understanding is on the other side of tasting, church. For this I also believe that unless I believe, I shall not understand. Let me translate that for you. You've got to take a bite, and then you'll see. The difference in not tasting and tasting is the difference between knowing about the Lord and actually knowing the Lord. It is only in tasting that we find someone so enjoyable, so reliable, so desirable that we find true blessing. The blessing of taking refuge not in ourselves or our creative solutions, but in the Lord himself. Wilson puts it this way, blessing comes precisely from acknowledging one's dependence upon God, that he alone is the refuge we seek. We find protection in tasting of the Lord and finding true good in Him. He alone can satisfy the deepest longings of our lives and, and deliver us from death. So in verse 9, David calls upon the saints, that is all who have been set apart for the Lord by faith, to fear Him, to revere Him, to stand in awe of Him, and, and not in awe of the problems and adversity that we face. And why should we do this? Look at the second line of verse 9, those who fear him have no lack. Now we'll finish this psalm next week and we'll learn in verse 17 and 19, this doesn't mean a trouble-free life, but we have no lack because we have the ultimate good who is the Lord. Kidner writes this, it is not an empty promise of affluence or riches, but an assurance that the, Lord's, that the Lord will give us his responsible care. In feasting on the Lord, in tasting of Him, in revering Him above our troubles, we will find that we have the one we need. This concept is found in the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Yes, we will face the valley of the shadow of death, Psalm 23, 4. But tasting of the Lord and His goodness upends our fear and sets us free. And the reality is there's no other creature in creation that can have the peace that the human being can have in knowing the Lord. Look at verse 10. Even the young lions have to deal with the constant pursuit of food. They can grow weary and hungry and find themselves unable to be nourished as they are needed to, as is needed to live and to thrive. But verse 10, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Again, this is not a promise of smooth sailing, but a reminder of the truth that the Lord prepares a table for those who trust Him, even in the presence of our enemies. David's there behind enemy lines. He's trapped, he's caught in Gath, the very city from which Goliath had come from. There's nothing he can do when he cries out to the Lord and 
apparently in that little communion, it's like, well, act insane for a second. I got you, David. God delivers him. God prepares a table for David, even in the midst of enemy opposition. And Longman writes this, those who fear God fundamentally recognize that it is their relationship with God which will satisfy them completely. This morning, if you're looking for satisfaction outside of God, you'll never find what you're looking for. But you've heard about the Lord. You've heard that the Lord is good. And as our worship team comes, I want to ask you, have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? You know, there's just one problem with that Frankie Rollins filet, which some of you are still thinking about. It's the price, right? I mean, it's a fair price. Don't misunderstand me. Stacy and I celebrated 23 years last night, and we went to Frankie's. And it was good. And it was worth every penny. But the Frankie Rollins steak isn't cheap. And the reality is, the opportunity to taste and see that the Lord is good is not cheap. Your sin deserves death and everlasting separation from the presence of God. And God sent His Son to take your place. The price of access to the goodness of God has been paid in full by Jesus. He came and lived a perfect life, earning the blessing of God, dying, atoning death on the cross, rising on the third day. And the promise of the scripture is if you will look to Jesus, you can taste and see that the Lord is good. But if you keep trying to solve your own problems, create your own solutions, and dwell in your own sin, you will never know the goodness of God. And this morning, I want to ask you, are you willing to look foolish to the world in order to escape it? Are you willing to stop boasting in yourself and to instead boast in a crucified Savior? Are you willing to stop feasting on what leads to death and instead feast on Christ who died and rose again? Would you, would you bow with me? God in heaven, for those in this room within the sound of my voice over in the overflow and online God I pray I pray for those who are famished this morning God those that do know you but have been trapped in a, a pattern of sin and need to return and a fresh taste and see that you are good that they would that they would do that and God for those who have never known the goodness of God God they, they could probably pass a theology exam and get a get a 100% score, but God, they never actually repented and believed and known the goodness of God in their inner man. I got, but God, I pray today would be the day that they taste and you open their eyes to see how great and good you are. God, have your will and your way in this place. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store.
Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.